Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Why would you pitch to Jordan Alvarez? It's a bold strategy to leave pitches over the plate for one of the best sluggers in Major League Baseball. But that is the bold strategy of the Seattle Mariners. It did not pay off again yesterday. As the big fella, the Cuban sensation, blasted yet another home run in this American League Divisional Series and helped lift the Astros to a 2-0 to series lead as now the ALDS switches over to Seattle for games three and game four, if needed, Saturday and Sunday. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Of course, I'm joined inside the studio by the producer extraordinaire, Miss Hannah Five Names, who's getting to experience the heartache of being a baseball fan firsthand. The joy of making the playoffs, the joy of winning a come-from-behind series as they did in the wild card round, and now the heartbreak of watching your team, let's be honest, definitely should have won game one. Game two, eh, had a chance, had one of your aces pitching, but you can't throw those pitches. You just can't. Not to the big fella. I mean, the guy is one of the best sluggers in Major League Baseball. That's a bit of a misstep. Got a great show lined up for you today. It's a packed edition, as it typically is on Fridays. Coming up at 7 o'clock, James Yasko will join us from the Lima Time Time podcast to talk the Strohs going up 2 nothing. Does he feel like they're going to take care of this series on Saturday, or does he think Seattle, because the series is back in the Emerald City, is it, are they going to steal a game, keep this series going? Then, at 7.30, we'll talk to Locked on Gators host Brandon Olson. He covers the Florida Gators. We'll get some insight on the job Billy Napier's done in his first season at the helm as they welcome in the LSU Tigers on Saturday to the Swamp, of course. You can listen to that game live right here on the game. Pre-game will begin at 4 o'clock with Hunt Palmer, Marlon Favorite, and Brandon Taylor, and then Kickoff at 6 o'clock with Chris Blair on the call. Then at 8 o'clock, we got a treat for you. St. Edmund Blue Jays legend. He won a state championship in baseball as a player. Played for a state championship in football. 
but then went on to coach both baseball and football at St. Ed's, winning three state championships in baseball, as well as leading the football program to the state semifinals. Scotty Richard will be joining us. You're not going to want to miss that as we catch up with the man who represents what a Blue Jay is all about. Then, of course, your fantasy football help for the weekend from our expert, Zach Miller, and Fletcher Mackle of WDSU for the Big Easy Blitz to talk Saints Bengals. So, jam-packed edition, getting you ready for the weekend. Hannah and I will make our picks for LSU, McNeese, and Saints as well. But we got to start off with the Strohs. They're in the driver's seat here. It's not necessarily impossible for Seattle to come back. But in a five-game set, it's going to be immensely challenging. The problem for the Mariners is they let the game one get away from them. They roughed up Verlander in that game. He had an opportunity to steal one on the road. And, of course, they gave up the walk-off three-run blast to Alvarez. So they needed to get game two. If you let game one slip through your fingers, you got to get game two to even the series. That way you can go back home. And it's, you know, it's tied up. But they let yesterday's one get away from them as well. And now they find themselves down 0-2. To a team, once again, I've talked about this over and over again, experience matters. It just does. The experience of having been in the postseason, seeing these scenarios, being down, understanding what it takes to not lose your composure, understanding what it takes to win a game when you probably shouldn't have won, Astros have all that. Seattle doesn't have any of it. Now, this experience of making the postseason, winning the wild card round, and playing a dominant team like the Astros can only help Seattle moving forward. These are kind of the, you know, tough love, life lessons that some teams need to go through before they can take that next step and push through. Astros had to do the same thing themselves. So, the future looks bright, for sure, for the Mariners. But man, they had the opportunity. Had the opportunity to get straight, get there, even up this series, and just couldn't do it. Now, credit the Astros. And here's an interesting thing. Kyle Tucker... Almost a 30-30 guy this year. First-time All-Star. You know, he doesn't have that playoff experience that the other Astros do. But what makes it easier for guys like Tucker and Jeremy Pena to step up in big moments is that they don't have the pressure to do so because they're surrounded by guys who know how to step up in the big moment. That's how that works. Tucker homers to right there in the second inning. Gives the Astros a quick one nothing lead. But credit the Mariners because they respond in the fourth. Not only do they tie it up, then they get a single to right by Moore. That brings in another run. Just like that, it's a 2-1 ball game. Favor Seattle. But then 
unfortunately, in the sixth inning, they throw a pitch to Alvarez. It was like hitting batting practice, this time to left field instead of right. I mean, when you saw it, you're like, oh, no. As soon as I saw it come out of his hand, I was like, oh, that's – I've watched enough baseball over the years to go, oh, no. Yeah, oh, no. And – when how you just you can sometimes you can just sense it when you see a player and you just see Alvarez go, oh okay, thanks, no doubt. Right over the left field wall, two run blast, that makes it three to two. Then Bregman brings in a run later in the eighth inning for an insurance run for four to two. Castillo seven innings. Only gave up five hits, but the costly three runs. Costly three runs. Seven strikeouts, 104 pitches for him. For the Strohs, look, this is a game where Jose Altuve went 0 for 4. Yuli Gurriel, 0 for 3. But Jeremy Pena in the two-hole, two runs scored. Two for three. Alvarez has the one hit. That's the home run. Tucker. So it's not as if the Astros had batting practice. Once again, Seattle's pitchers just made a few miscues. And the Astros made him pay for it. Framer Valdez, five and two thirds. Two earned runs on four hits. Walked three. Struck out six. Not a bad performance, not a dominant performance. But it was enough for the Strohs to get the win. Presley comes in, gets the save. Naris comes in and pitches one-third of an inning to get the win. Series now shifts to Seattle. And now it's going to be desperation time for the Mariners because Saturday's an elimination game. Got to win and survive. That's why it's so critical to get game two after you drop game one in a five-game series. Because you can't – now you put yourself – you're back against the wall, so to speak. Can they turn it around? Maybe. You're going to be at home. The fans should be great. Once again – they had to win their wild card series on the road. So they haven't been at home in front of their own fans for a little while. I expect the ballpark to be loud because this may be the only time Mariners fans get to cheer on their team during these playoffs. And they'd love nothing more to cheer on their team to victory and force a game four, which would be the following day on Sunday. But you just can't throw that pitch to Alvarez. Like of all the guys to throw that pitch to, that he's the he's the guy that you don't throw that pitch to. He's so big, he has such a large swing that when you make that type of mistake, he's going to make you pay for it nine out of ten times. And that's a good pitcher that threw that pitch. It's not a bad pitcher. It's a good pitcher. 
a really good pitcher that made a really bad pitch. And what? He made, what, really two bad pitches in the game? If we're being honest? The one to Tucker for the home run? And the one to Alvarez? That's the difference in the ball game right there. That's the difference. That's what it comes down to in playoff baseball. The littlest things matter. He threw two bad pitches in this game. Two. That was the difference in the ballgame. That's what happens in the postseason for Major League Baseball. Two bad pitches, and the Astros are the type of team, because they're so confident, because of their experience, they will make you pay for that every single time. Series now goes to Seattle. We'll have... Game three for you on our sister station, News Talk, 98.5 FM on Saturday. Because obviously we'll have LSU football on the game tomorrow. And then if game four is needed, that will be on our sister station as well. We got to take a timeout. We'll put the Astros talk aside just briefly, just ever so briefly. As we'll take a moment to recap... Oh, the atrocity that is, that was the Thursday night football game between the Commanders and the Bears. I was texting our good friend Jim Gazzolo because my childhood team facing his childhood team in a game that many people really didn't want to (laughs) watch. Including the two of us. But we watched it anyway because we enjoy pain. We'll talk about Thursday night football next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Great news, my sports-loving friend. No more aimlessly searching for sports talk love by swiping left or right. That's because you've already found the perfect match for Sports Talk Love, that is. I'm ready for love. Now, back to the only lover you'll ever need the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Uh, the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com can help you with your date night blues. That's because once you become a member of our rewards club, you're going to have the opportunity to score excellent prizes like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester Steakhouse down in Cypress Bayou, or you can score yourself a $50 gift certificate to Half Shell Oyster House or even a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen. But you can only score these great prizes by becoming a member of the Game Clubhouse today at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free. It's simple. So go sign up today. It's really easy. Trust me. I was able to figure it out. So I have the full amount of confidence that you can do it as well. 
Let's talk Thursday night football. You know, we went nearly six quarters without a touchdown being scored in Thursday night football in back-to-back weeks. <laughs> not optimal. Not, not, not optimal. On one hand, you have the Washington Redskins slash football team slash commanders who are making all the headlines these days because of a massive investigative report by ESPN into Daniel Snyder and all the horrendous practices he's doing as an owner and the fact that he's been compiling dirt on other owners and on the commissioner. So there you go. Got that going for him. They also have Carson Wentz as their quarterback. And they're on the struggle bus. And they got to go to Chicago to take on a team that is on that same struggle bus with them, the Chicago Bears. I don't really understand the game plan on the development of Justin Fields for the Bears. Uh, You even have guys on the Thursday night broadcast like Andrew Whitworth and Tony Gonzalez and Richard Sherman that are like, why aren't they letting Justin Fields play? The ultra-conservative play calling this year, you don't allow your franchise quarterback who's young, only in his second year, to, to do what he does best, which is he rolls out of the pocket and he throws extremely well outside of the pocket. Instead, they're like, no, our offensive line is trash. Justin, what we would like you to do is stay in the pocket as long as possible and let yourself get beat down over and over again and not use your natural instincts to actually move the ball down the field. How's that sound, bud? Sounds great. They had two drives inside the 10-yard line in last night's game, and they got no points. They had a defensive lineman from Washington, Jonathan Allen, who's 300 and some odd pounds, intercept Justin Fields because he's a little short. So it got knocked down at the line of scrimmage and got flew in the air. And there you got to see fat boy interception, which always makes me happy as a fellow fat man. And then they came down another time and couldn't score points. And they still had a chance in this game, which ended up being, wait for it, 12-7. to Oh. 12-7. That's your final score. Woof. Just woof. Washington scores nine points in the fourth quarter to pull out the hard-fought win over the Bears. Fields, who I believe has talent but once again was mismanaged as a rookie and looks like he's being mismanaged yet again with a different coaching staff. 14 to 27 for 190 yards, a touchdown and a pick. He was sacked five times and his QBR, wait for it, was 28. By the way, that's terrible for those who don't understand QBR. 28.3 is trash. He's also was the Bears, yes, the franchise 
of Walter Payton. Justin Fields also led the team in rushing. 12 carries for 88 yards. Now, to be fair, the Bears did do a nice job of running the football. 238 yards on the ground. But he didn't get him anywhere. On the other side, you had the prolific offense led by Carson Wentz. Just five names. I know you didn't watch the game because you watched your Mariners take on the Astros and you were like, hey, I've already gone through that misery. Do I really want to be subjugated to watching Thursday night football? And you knew that I was going to do so. So you're like, oh, someone's got it. So if, if I just had to throw this out to you, just a quick question. Don't look on the Google machine. If I told you, if I gave you a number, just guess, how many yards do you think the winning quarterback in this game threw in last night's victory? Who do you think the winning quarterback was Carson Wentz? the starter for the Washington Redskins slash football team slash commanders. He's the winning quarterback. Mm-hmm. And the score was 12-7, right? 12-7. to 7. 150. That's, that, that's, what, that's a good guess. You guess Carson Wentz threw for 150 yards in this ballgame because mm-hmm. he's the winning quarterback. Yeah. 99 yards. <laughs> J- Really? This is what we're doing, NFL? The start of the NFL season has been trash. I think we can all can admit to that. Yeah. It has been awful. It has been a dreadful product to watch. Carson Wentz was 12 of 22 for 99 yards. No touchdowns, no picks, sacked three times. If you thought Justin Fields' QBR of 28.3 was bad, Carson Wentz says, hold my beer. 22.5. This is a primetime game between two very, very proud franchises. And the quarterbacks combined did not throw for 300 yards. Combined did not throw for 300 yards. They did have the nice story. Brian Robinson, the former Alabama running back who was shot during the preseason a few times he played last week he played again last night he led Washington in rushing with 17 carries for 60 yards and the lone touchdown they scored there in the fourth quarter which was all they could muster in this ball game just you, you can try to make the argument that oh it was good defense no no it wasn't no it wasn't the defense was okay this was dreadful, dreadful offensive football. But as our buddy Vinny Iyer pointed out on social media last night about the lack of scoring, about the lack of, you know, offensive production, he said not to worry. He, he said not to worry because next Thursday night, Kyler Murray and Taysom Hill will make sure we have points on the board because next Thursday is Saints at Cardinals. Thursday night football from the desert that one should at least have some scoring we can keep our fingers crossed that that hopefully will happen we got to take a timeout here on rp3 and company 
when we return from the timeout. We're going to start previewing LSU Florida. Hear from Billy Napier, hear from Brian Kelly. That's all coming up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Uh, In Louisiana, there are thousands of miles of utility lines and gas pipelines buried just beneath the surface. Sometimes multiple lines are in one area, and you don't even know it. So look, if you are a contractor that you've hired is, you know, digging a hole to put in a new fence, a pool, or any other reason, does not matter. You run the risk of hitting an underground line by digging only a few inches. What happens then? Maybe you only knock the power out for your entire neighborhood, but sometimes there's an explosion with injuries and even death. It happens every single year. There's a very simple way to avoid it. Before you dig, call 811. Call 811 two days before you dig. Tell the operator your address and someone's going to come out and mark the location of buried lines so you or your contractor can avoid them. It's simple, it's free, and it's the law. Louisiana 811 operates 811 as a public service and to promote public safety. Louisiana 811 and the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles reminds you call 811 and know it's below before you dig. Let's talk LSU Florida. It's always an interesting game. It's become a bit of a rivalry as well. Not only in football, but this carries over into other sports as well. Basketball, baseball, softball. Right now, though, this is going to be a a key game for both coaches. Brian Kelly, first year at the helm of the Tigers. He's trying to establish his foundation. He's trying to establish his culture, the way he wants to do things, with a limited roster. This team's 4-2. 2-1 in the SEC. Billy Napier, guess what? Former Raging Cajun head football coach is trying to do the same thing, trying to establish his culture like he did with the Raging Cajuns. His team has been inconsistent as well. His roster is limited as well. Dan Mullen ignored recruiting and said, I'm not going to bother to do that during the season. Well, welcome to modern football. Rosters limited as well with the Gators. Is why Billy Napier... Brought a couple of guys with him from UL to Florida. Both teams are 4-2. and Both teams have had good wins. And some games they let get away from them. In the case of Florida, they opened up the season taking down number 7 Utah right off the bat. But then they turned around and looked bad in a loss to Kentucky. Then they had to eke out a win over South Florida. Not a good South Florida team. Lost a shootout with Tennessee. Had to hold on to beat Missouri last week. Missouri's been giving people problems, though. Gave Georgia problems, too, so maybe Missouri's actually pretty good. But they've struggled. LSU, great win over Mississippi State. That was a great win. Shut down that high-powered offense. Go on the road, come from behind to beat Auburn. But then we're humbled Saturday inside Death Valley. So this is going to be a game that's going to help determine the trajectory of each program in year one under their new coaches. It's not a must win, but it is a needed win, 
especially if both teams want to be bold teams, if both teams want to, you know, lay a good foundation in year number one. Seven wins, I believe, is a good foundation year for both of these programs. And it's going to be interesting to see how these two teams play. How does Florida, who always gets up for LSU and the same goes for the Tigers, how will they get up for this game and having an opportunity to beat an SEC West foe? How does LSU dust itself off and then have to go on the road to the Swamp, which is a notoriously difficult place to play? Billy Napier obviously had all that success with the Raging Cajuns. And he knows how good of a program LSU has been. He knows the type of job Brian Kelly can do there. And he gave his thoughts during the SEC coaches conference call earlier this week about his team facing off against those Tigers. We're right in the middle of the work. You know, we're continuing to work hard to create an identity for this team, you know, halfway through. And really working hard on the mental toughness of our team, the ability to overcome obstacles, you know, coaches accountable, players accountable, uh, and really competition, right? Uh, earning our opportunities uh, to compete, right? So I've got to take ownership of our mistakes. Uh, continue to work on our fundamentals here and eliminate the bad ball, right? Um, realizing that practice execution will eventually show up on game day. But overall, you know, right in the middle of the action here, uh, trying to help our players prepare the right way and create some confidence. Asked about the LSU game and did the classic Billy thing. That quote, could have been utilized any time in the last four years. Coach, what do you make? You know, we're working on ourselves. We're working on our own development, self-evaluating, working on the, you know, it's the classic Billy answer. Ain't about the opponent, it's about us, it's about what we're working on, what we need to improve upon. This is what Billy does. This is what made him such a good coach with the Cajuns. It was never about the opponent. He never even felt comfortable talking about another opponent. He would always be complimentary and then turn the attention to himself and his team and their process. The man loves the process of football. The preparation, the coaching, the developing. He is an absolute fiend for that kind of stuff. A lot of Some coaches aren't built for that. Billy loves all of it. The stuff that you don't see on the offseason on a Tuesday – to the Thursday of a game week. All of it. He's he's built that way. He just is. Now, his defense, which has been a work in progress, but they have made some strides in the last couple of weeks against Eastern Washington, but more importantly against Missouri, where they were absolutely lights out. And that could be a huge factor in this game because – LSU's offense is a bit pedestrian. They can't run the football, and they have to depend on Jane Daniels to do everything for them. But the Gators' defense looks like it's pretty darn good, and Billy talked about his defense's performance from last week's game. You know, we knew that it 
that we, we were going to have to play our best ball and certainly defend them. Um, and we had a good plan, and we had some great individual performances. But overall, we played much better team defense at every level, right? Line of scrimmage, edges, second and third level, Ben Trail being right at the heart of that. And, um, you know, just every time you thought that maybe they had something going, uh, 51 came out of nowhere to get the guy on the ball. For LSU, they have to find a way to flush Saturday's game behind them. The problem for the Tigers is they're facing a quarterback who has potential. Now, Anthony Richardson looked great in that opener against Utah. And then for three games after that, he didn't look so good. Even in the opener against Utah, he didn't have a passing touchdown. In fact, he didn't have a passing touchdown the first three games of the season. His touchdown to interception ratio is 5-7. to seven. Now, he can use his legs, which he has multiple times. But something changed in the Tennessee game where all of a sudden he could get the passing game going. His QBR has been better. He's been throwing passing touchdowns. The turnovers are down. So Richardson's maybe made a kind of turned a corner a little bit. But Brian Kelly, when he watches tape of Anthony Richardson, kind of reminds him about the dynamic Heisman candidate that they just faced on Saturday in Death Valley. I mean, it was a breakout performance for him last year. I mean, you know, young uh, quarterback that, uh, you know, played very, very well on the road. That says a lot. I mean, that gave him a lot of confidence to continue to grow. I mean, look, I said this, I think, earlier in the week in my press conference. You know, there's some similarities between him and, and, and Hendon Hooker in terms of size and physicality. Um, you know, his ability to throw the football. These are similar quarterbacks, and and they're talking about Hooker as a, you know, a Heisman Trophy candidate. So, um, you know, he's got incredible skill. Um, we're gonna have to do a great job of of containing him. Um, they've got an outstanding offensive line that protects him very well and allows him to run the football, which gives him the opportunity to, you know, obviously have a balanced offense and and throw the football because they're so good at running the football. So. A very talented player. So they know what Richardson can do, how he can hurt them. So I don't know. You also saw how much Hooker hurt Florida when they faced off earlier this year. Could they use some of Jaden Daniels in that capacity? Use his ability to be a dual threat quarterback to be able to move the chains? Maybe. And Kelly further discussed his thoughts about facing off against the Florida Gators, a fellow foreign to ball club. Looking forward to uh, obviously uh, playing at uh, Florida, coming back from a uh, disappointing loss last week. Uh, guys are excited about the opportunity. You know, obviously they've had uh, an opportunity to, uh, you know, work hard this week and, and look forward to the challenge. You know, another SEC opponent, which uh, again, uh, Poses all kinds of problems. Great quarterback, uh, Coach Napier is an outstanding football coach, and uh, our guys are uh, excited about the challenge. They may have somebody else back that could be a huge contributor. Will Campbell missed last week's game. If you remember, reports came out on the Friday during walkthroughs. He collapsed, had to be hospitalized, severe dehydration. 
Brian Kelly gave us an update about the freshman star left tackle out of Neville High School. Yeah, Will was released from the hospital. Uh, he has uh, cleared all of the testing uh, necessary for him to uh, to practice. He practiced yesterday. He will uh, practice again today, and we expect him to play this Saturday. So that's a huge, huge boost for LSU to get, who's arguably probably their best offensive lineman as a freshman. That's a discussion for another day. But having him back can only help as they head to the Swamp. Once again, that game, pregame with Hunt Palmer, Marlon Favorite, Brandon Taylor will begin at 4 o'clock right here on the game. Kickoff 6 with Chris Blair on the call. LSU, Florida, live from the Swamp. We got to take a timeout. We'll talk McNeese football coming up next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. No, we had a good week. Um, you know, it came at the right time. You know, the bye week came at the right time. I think anytime you have a bye week in the middle part of the season, um, it is a good thing. So, um, you know, we gave them a few extra days off. You know, we uh, cut practice back to about an hour and a half practice each day. Went a lot of good on good, you know. So, um, you know, we work fundamentals, you know, always. But um, it was good to go against each other and kind of get the fastball um, offensively and defensively. And then allowed us to get on the road. You know, we went on the road um, all day Thursday and then back in the high school games on Friday. So um, it, it was a good week. It was a productive week. Um, you know, this week's been a good week as, as well. So I'm excited to see these guys play Saturday night. That's McNeese head football coach Gary Goff talking about the team coming off the bye week and getting ready for their conference home opener, which will be tomorrow night. They're in Lake Chuck against Texas A&M Commerce. Of course, yours truly will be there in the house reporting, covering for the website and social media, not to worry. It's interesting to see how McNeese is going to finish this season. Not an optimal start to the season, but it's the first year. It's a foundation year for head coach Gary Goff. Once again, he had to add, what, 53 players to the roster? (laughs) That's a bit of a challenge. But the Southland itself, the conference itself, is down. Southeastern doesn't look to be very good. Nichols doesn't look to be very good. Northwestern State looks to be eh. Lamar. There's no one that's running away with the Southland Conference. So the back end of the schedule, well, of course, sorry, maybe incarnate work. But the back end of the schedule sits up for the Cowboys. They could finish, they could win maybe three or four games because they're going to be playing Lamar, Southeastern Louisiana, Nichols, and starting off with Texas A&M Commerce tomorrow night. And be interesting to see not only how they play in the second half of the season, but also how good was the bye week for them? You know, we heard Jim Gazzolo earlier this week when he joined us on the program from the Lake Charles American Press, also host of the McNeese Coaches Show, that Gary Goff and the staff have been tweaking things, been working on things, been moving some players around, putting new wrinkles into the offense in particular to try to get things going, making those in-season adjustments, if you will. And they've had a ton of injuries. They've had guys being you know, kicked off the team for disciplinarian issues. And they've had a slew of injuries as well. So not only do they have a ton of different guys on the roster, 
they've had throughout the season have had to use younger players and force them to step up, and Golf talked about that as well. Notice that? I don't think anybody would notice. Uh, We've got good depth. Um, We're going to have some young bucks play. You know, that's just part of it, next man up. Um, You know, in in this this sport, due to injuries or or, or some outside uh, situations, you know, they've got to be ready to play. And that's why we brought some of these guys here to compete and play. Um, And I'm anxious to see some of these these young guys get in there and, and play for the first time. I'm excited for them. Um, you know, so, you know, we talked to the team last week um, and then it carried over to this week that, you know, look, we're, we're not making excuses and we're not going to let anybody make excuses for us. Nobody really cares what the excuse is. So, um, hey, just go out there every day and continue to play hard. And um, you know, we, we've had a good week. And, and because we are playing some guys at some different positions um, and they're kind of getting some of their first real action, we're going to need some other positions to play. Going to need some other guys to step up and play. I'm going to be fascinated to see the type of performance and the type of attitude the Cowboys are going to bring to the game on Saturday night. That's going to do it for hour number one. Hour number two, we'll shift back to baseball. James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast will join us. And that's how we're going to kick off hour number two right here on RP3 and Company. You're listening to the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This weather update on the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles is brought to you by Superior Contract Cleaning, Acadiana's top choice for flood, fire, and mold remediation. Visit superiorcontractcleaning.com. A cool morning this morning with temperatures in the low to mid-60s. Clear skies, temperatures will be rising through the 70s and into the upper 80s. Still some relatively dry air overhead with a northeast to easterly wind, but those winds will be shifting out of the southeast and south later on tonight and for tomorrow, bringing moisture right back into the area. I'm live Doppler 10 Storm Team Meteorologist Trevor Saunier. Oh, yeah. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Oh, our number two has arrived. We're getting you ready for the weekend here on RP3 and company. Coming up in a half hour from right now, we're going to preview the LSU-Florida game with Brandon Olson from Locked on Gators podcast. He'll join us, give his thoughts on the job Billy Napier, former Raging Cajun head football coach, is doing down in Gainesville. And just how equally matched these two teams are going to be when they take the field tomorrow evening in the swamp once again pregame begins at four o'clock kickoff six o'clock and you can listen to it all live right here on the game your home for the lsu tigers and we're also your home for the houston astros and as you could listen to yesterday the strohs take a two to nothing series lead in the american league divisional series against the seattle mariners joining us now to talk about that and to look ahead to this weekend and whether or not Houston can close it out in game three on Saturday 
is our friend from the Lima Time Time podcast, also a contributor for the Houston Chronicle, our good friend James Yasko. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm, you know, yeah, not bad. How are you? Oh, look at it. Downplaying it for the sake of Hannah. That's sweet. That's adorable. That's adorable that you're just downplaying how excited you are that the fact that you went up 2 nothing and that the fact that Seattle's pitching staff decided to throw meat pitches to Yarnall and Alvarez. Yeah, no, that's that was that was sweet of them. I mean, you know that I've been to Seattle. It's a friendly city. I didn't ex- I didn't expect the the friendship to to go that far, but you know we'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. He's being so nice to you, five names. Being so, if you if you weren't here, it would be a whole different tone to this interview right now. I oh, can just guarantee slander. you. I would I would say that Seattle fans are the the crazy town. Uh, they're a crazy town tattoo, like that that has become sentient. <laughs> Like a, a maroon, just a, a walking maroon five lyric. That that's uh, on, on a recent podcast we referred to Mariners fans as Twilight fans who found out that they enjoyed baseball. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that now. I respect Hannah too much. <laughs> She's giving you the daggers, my friend. Oh, all right. Let's go back to game one. Uh, it's another postseason start where Justin Verlander was not very good. Uh, and that's a kind of a trend that we forgot about because of the fact that he had to be shut down and have Tommy John. Yet, despite Verlander being awful out on the bump, they find a way to win this game to rookie step up big there in the ninth to get on the base paths. And then the Mariners make a, just an awful decision to bring in Ray to pitch. And he left a pitch perfectly wide just in the best spot possible for batting practice. And you just looked at Alvarez and he went, really? And he said, okay, done. Three-run blast, game over, Astros win. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, pretty, good, <clears throat> that's a pretty good summary. The Verlander thing is, is weird because um, it's not like he was sitting, like his fastball was suddenly like 91, 92. Like he was still getting it up 97, 98. Um, it's just like he couldn't locate. And I don't know if that comes from, uh, a little bit of rust. You know, I know he pitched five innings, you know, in the, in the, uh, last game of the regular season. Um, but I think that that had more to do with just kind of like just sitting around, uh, and, and waiting while the Mariners were playing, you know, a very intense wildcard series. Um, the Astros just kind of like working out and, you know, just sort of trying to go about their business as, as best they could. He didn't look bad. He, it's like he couldn't locate as, as well as, as maybe, you know, the, the, what we've seen. But, you know, it's also – that was like the seventh time the Mariners had seen Verlander this season. Like, you can only do that so many times where you it's just complete and utter domination. And that's what Verlander had done with the exception of one start at the end of May where they kind of did what they did uh, in game one. So I think it's just that's, – there's that's just the level of familiarity between the two. Uh, between the two teams so you you don't make you don't take any stock in the fact that his last five postseason starts he's 0 for 4 and an era of 10 look that's not ideal but but it's still, <laughs> he's still, he's still verlander i mean you know I, I know the the world series you know he's never recorded a win in a world series that's which is insane um but no this felt this felt more like rust and and just kind of missing your missing your spots rather than just the I don't. I don't think alarm bells are ringing just yet. Okay. 
what did you make of the fact that you guys were down, uh, looking like you were going to be out, looked like you were going to lose game one, and yet found a way to win the game, in particular with the play of a couple of rookies setting up the game-winning home run for Alvarez? The, the two most important developments <clears throat> for, for the Astros this postseason uh, is Bregman figuring it out, you know, and, and I guess it started maybe the middle of June, but but really since his kid know, was born August. Yeah. Yeah. Since it, he's got that dad strength now. Uh, and so that that is huge in terms of protection for for Jordan. I mean, we saw that yesterday. You know, they intentionally walked Alvarez and, and here comes Bregman with an RBI single to make it four two. Uh, the other the other big development for the lineup is is Jeremy Pena in that two hole um, that's getting on base for for Alvarez. And so, um, you know, that was the 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 walk by Hensley, you know, in game one. That was that was incredible. And then for Pena to after about 20 seconds after looking just absolutely stupid on on us on a slider away, shoots one back up the middle and. Uh, and gets on base and, and sets that up for Jordan. So those are the two biggest things in terms of, you know, that's that's two, three, four that are that are just killing it right now. And and we haven't even Altuve hasn't shown up yet. Defensively he has, but I mean he's over eight with a walk. And and you know, once he figures it out, then you've got a you've got a one through five, one through six that's absolutely deadly. So you win game one in dramatic fashion. Game two comes around, you get just enough really yesterday to to win the game right you get a, a great shot by Tucker he gives you an early lead but then Seattle responds and uh, uh Castillo is on the bump and he's pitching really well and he you know he threw the bad pitch to Tucker but I thought he pitched really well for Seattle and then there was another pitch that they probably regretted throwing to Alvarez and boom, there's your another home run blast. Yeah, and that I mean the Astros have, have been here have been here before. Yesterday was was Jose Altuve's 81st postseason game. Uh it, and so you know that's that's a half season of of just playoff games in Altuve's career. Uh and it's and he's been around a while, but it's not like he's, you know, he's 39 years old. Um, but what it shows is that is the the patience uh of of the of the lineup and knowing that hey, there's you know as, as long as they have outs they've got a chance you know it was like castillo threw what, like 60 pitches in the first in the first five innings and then uh you know and, and then sort of labored in the in the sixth and seventh and and they just sort of got him and and that's you know the the willingness to just sort of wait out a starting pitcher there and if, if you throw a perfect game then god bless you via con dios and and that's that but but this is a team that's experienced enough to, to know that that there's always a shot. So you're up now to nothing. What's your confidence level with the series now headed to Seattle to go ahead and close this out on Saturday and not have the series extend itself at all? So, all right. So I, I, I looked this up, and in the, in the ALDS – the Astros in Game One are seven and zero all time. Uh, they're six and one in Game Two, and they're two and four in Game Three. So for whatever reason, Game Three just kind of well, I mean, it's the first home playoff game for, you know, for for whoever they're they're facing. So uh, you know, they're, they're, you could expect a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a blip, but maybe that's why 
they went Framber in game two and, and Lance McCullers in, in game three. Cause you know, Lance, Lance McCullers is, is a stone cold, like might be a serial killer. Like that he's that, that's just sort of the energy he gives off uh, on the mound. So, you know, I mean, you've got to, you've got to win one of the next three. And if they can do it Saturday, then I think that's what they'd prefer uh, to, to get rested up for whoever comes out of that Yankees guardian series. Somebody's been watching the Netflix documentary on uh, on Jeffrey incorporating uh, serial killer talk into the conversation I'm this not, this I'm morning. I've not seen that. I have not seen that. I, I, that that's something I don't need. I, I know what it's about. I I, I don't I, I don't need that. Neg- I don't need that negativity. I don't I'm, need I'm that playing. negativity. Not so. watching that. Not watching it. So you expect the Strohs to maybe stumble here a little bit against the Mariners in game three. First of all, this will also be the first game Seattle fans have been able to see at home in the playoffs since 2001. So I'd expect it to be very loud and electric atmosphere tomorrow in the Emerald City. And But here's here's the thing about that is that if, if, if they're going to get, you know, the Astros are going to be booed relentlessly. And that stadium, whatever it's called, uh, not Safeco Field. It's no, it's no longer Safeco Field, right? That's what it's, I remember. It's, I, think it as. They, I, I think it's I think it's officially not safe Cofield. Like that's where the not is in is in pink, if I remember correctly. It's the it's yeah. So when they go to not safe Cofield, they're the, the if there is the team that does not care how loud the opposing fans are, how loud they how loudly and lustily they get booed, uh, it's the Astros. So I mean, it it is within the realm of possibility that by the time the Mariners uh, pick up a bat, it'll be five nothing, and because they just don't care uh what the other fans what the other fans do they've been getting booed for two years now yeah they have everywhere they go they they're they're getting they're getting booed so it shouldn't matter so all right so when we talk next week a i assume you believe the astros will be in the alcs and two how many games will it take for them to advance the alcs I'm going to say four. I, 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 I don't, I don't think I, you know, a sweep is, is extremely, is extremely possible. I also don't know. Have they announced, have the Mariners announced who they're throwing in that game in tomorrow's game? Not yet. Yeah. So I, I also, it might not matter. So, I, I mean, I'm going to say, I'm going to say they advance in games 3.5 uh, because I think it's equally likely that they, they win game three or game four. I think it is expected for us to throw Kirby. I think is what I saw somewhere. It's supposed to be Kirby supposed to be throwing for us, but I'm not 100 okay. on that answer. He's 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 good. So you know, I mean, I think the Mariners will be jazzed up, uh, and so I'm I'm sort of expecting that that adrenaline will will carry the Mariners in Game Three, and then the Astros get them in Game Four. So we'll wrap it up with this. I, I need to know what this, this this new James Yasko is because this guy that I've been talking to this morning, I don't know who he is, doesn't want to come out and talk trash, doesn't want to upset Hannah Five names, says uh, he's making uh, nods to serial killers but yet not watching serial killer shows, <coughs> is not trying to inject soccer talk into the conversation, is being measured with his responses, is not being bold with predictions. Who is this person I'm talking to today? This is a person who is absolutely terrified of Hannah. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think, I think there, there is, a, if I came out and, and actually said that Mariners fans were, were a walking maroon five lyric, uh, then, then 
I would I would wake up and she'd be standing over me and she'd slit my throat and that's the last thing I'd see. Well, we took a dark turn here this morning. Also, also welcome to Wrexham is is an absolutely wonderful show and everyone should watch it. <laughs> uh, but uh, enjoy your weekend, I guess. I I, I, yeah. I hope it's filled with. Uh, imagery of unicorns and puppies and not the, the darkness that is engulfing your soul this morning. Well, one, one good thing about this weekend is that, that I don't have to watch OU play. Uh, there's no, there's absolutely no reason to watch, to watch Oklahoma. Oh, uh, but I'm, uh, yeah. Oof. So, uh, oof. you know, there, there's a little bit, there's a little bit less on my plate. So, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to, to be positive and, <laughs> and I'm trying to be the good. You're trying try to be the good. The Try to be the good. Uh, I, I'd be willing to bet you you could probably get some tickets to an Oklahoma game for the rest of the year pretty cheap now. Yeah, yeah. They, they might not win another game. Like that's, That is within the realm of possibility. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend. And, hey, bud, Boomer Sooner may take down the top 25-ranked Kansas Jayhawks. It could... I, I'm probably going to lose to Kansas. Let's, let's, I mean, that, that's, that's, just where, that's just where things stand. James. We got none but love for you, bud. Enjoy your weekend. I hate Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley can go to hell. <laughs> That's James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast. Also proud Sooner grad and Oklahoma fan. He's not he's not too thrilled with with Boomer Sooner these days. He was nice and respectful to you. So he classed it up. Was like, no. He could have come on here and gloated. He could have come on here and rubbed it in your face. He said no. Now, he poked fun a little bit and said Mariner fans are like a Maroon 5 lyric come to life. But And I don't want to be compared to that after what Adam Levine's doing right now. So that is <laughs> <laughs> still a little bit of the grab there. But, I mean, I think it's a consensus now. People are either in the Hannah cult, that which, like, I walk on water just about, or they're terrified of me. I'm not sure if either are compliments or if they're daggers to me, if, if they love me or they hate me. Maybe, maybe it's both. Me. Maybe. Maybe they love and hate and are fearful of you all yeah. in the, at the same time. Yeah. Some just choose to be really nice <laughs> so you don't you get on their uh, – you, they don't get on your bad side. Yeah. See? It's not a good thing to be on my bad side. No. Uh, I'm usually no, on it at least three times a week. Mm-hmm. Trust me. I walk with a limp for a reason now. <laughs> we got to take a timeout. Hopefully uh, no violence will occur during um, – the timeout but when we return we'll talk a little saints football with you it's coming up next right here on the game southwest louisiana sports station and your home for the lsu tigers and houston astros do you think rp3 is the only nickname ray has think again there was little veinant there was little foot little bubba there was ld which stood for little dufo there was ray dog there was ray diggity dog there was fish there was fish face there was rp3 there was even ramundo from el segundo back to the host with more nicknames than he knows what to do with rp3 right here on the game 1037 lafayette and 1041 lake charles southwest louisiana's sports station Oh, my crawfish pie. The Sweet Dough Pie Festival is coming back and serving up a slice of history and deliciousness. Every year, pastry chefs and home cooks vie to be crowned best in the Sweet Dough Pie Contest. 
where the public is the judge. And, of course, a large variety of pies are available for purchase. The Sweet Dough Pie Festival returns on Saturday, October the 29th from 9 to 3 p.m. at Grand Coteau Town Park in Grand Coteau. For more information, call 337-331-6352. That's 337-331-6352. Or visit the Town of Grand Coteau's Facebook page. Coming up in less than 10 minutes from right now, Brandon Olson from the Locked On Gators podcast will join us as we preview LSU Florida's tilt inside the swamp tomorrow evening. Once again, pregame begins at 4, kickoff 6, and you can listen to it live right here on the game. But right now, let's head out to the hotline. Welcome on Martin to the show. Martin, good morning to you, brother. What's on your mind? Good morning, Mr. Lil Dufo. How are we doing this morning? I'm doing great, bud. So, there's this thing in, in, in this world called Hammer's Last Nerve. And I'm not afraid to admit it, but I love walking all over on that last nerve. <laughs> it's the funnest thing ever, you know? I mean, she can go Jeffrey Dahmer on me, but uh, I'll be fine. Uh, well, and anyway, not, t- t- typically, that's um, not how that worked. Just for historical perspective, if she went, you know, Dalma on you, that you would not be fine. But continue, Martin. Just want to clarify there. Uh, well, I guess uh, they would have to promote another vice chancellor, Erath. I guess. I mean, but anyway, it's a good. It, it, it's great being uh, the vice chancellor right now. You know, my Cowboys are going to beat the Eagles this week. This weekend, uh, my Bobcats won. Uh, but the reason why I called is uh, let's take a moment of silence for what was the Seattle Mariners 2022 uh, season because come Saturday they're going to RIP. Uh, and no matter how much Hanner said, so deep down inside she is uh, very, very sad because she probably thought they were going to win the World Series. Like, don't let her fool you. Uh, she's going to be mad because Astros are going to eliminate them. But anyway, um, that's all I pretty much had. Uh, all right, Martin. Have a great uh, day, think, bud. Uh, you I, have a good one, too. Thanks for taking my phone call, buddy. No problem. All right, so we're going to have some clarification here. Will Hannah be upset? Yes. But Hannah did not anticipate her team. Just a clarification here, Martin, Vice Chancellor of Erath. Just a clarification. She had already taken the approach that she was just happy that they made the postseason for the first time in 21 years. And that they won the wild card and she wasn't going to be greedy. She just did not want to be swept was her whole thing. She had no World Series aspirations because she knows that this is a foundation season. This is a lot of teams have to go through this where they taste a little success in the postseason and then they break through the next year. Is this correct? Yes. I still want to be swept. I would like a game four. That's all I'm That's all you're asking I'm for. I'm asking for. I, I don't want to be swept. That would really suck. I already had my, as people still think that I am not a true fan because I had this team picked this year but I had my my true fan moment I did cry and how much frustration I had of the ending of the game but I will be okay I might be mad about it for like a day that the Astros eliminate us but I won't be as mad because I'll know there's next year there you go there you go there it is see I like that attitude it's a good attitude to have it's a good attitude to have as, as a new baseball fan Let's take a couple moments here to talk a little New Orleans Saints, shall we? They get the win on Sunday against the Seattle Seahawks to get back to 2-3, and three, 
But now they have to face the Cincinnati Bengals. And the Bengals' offense has not looked what it like it did last year, right? They're bracketing Jamar Chase. They're taking him out of games or limiting his ability to be able to take the top off. They're not able to run the football as well as we thought they would with Joe Mixon. But they're still the Bengals. They're still Burrow and Chase, and it's still going to be an immense challenge for sure. And they're going to need to not necessarily replicate what they did against Seattle. You're not going to get four Taysom Hill touchdowns in this ballgame. But having the offense be able to put together touchdown drives, get the ball in Alvin Kamara's hand will be key. They did that last week. It proved to be a game changer against the Seahawks. Alvin Kamara will be ready to go again on Sunday against the Cincinnati Bengals. And... He was asked about running the football, and in particular, should they run it 48 times a game again? Should that be the standard moving forward for this offense? I don't care. Uh-huh. I, I feel like we can do it. I mean, I've said it every year. I mean, we have the, the front to do it. Um, I mean, we have the play caller to do it. Um, I, I, whenever we can get the ball, get the ball in, in to the running back room's hands or I mean, Taysom had carries. Whenever we can run the ball, I feel like we play well because it get, it just gets us going defensively and offensively. So, he's telling you, yeah, I'd love to run the football. And look, a running back is always going to tell you that. Even if they're only getting two yards a carry for the first half of the game, they're still going to tell you keep pounding the rock because history shows us you keep doing that, you're going to wear down the defense, and then you're going to bust off big, big runs. Big chunk runs are going to happen because of that. Now, it looks like it's going to be Andy Dalton again, even though Jameis Winston's back at practice. They've had to use Andy Dalton the last couple of weeks as the starting quarterback. And Kamara talked about the positives that he sees with having the red rifle under center. Guys cling to him. He has a certain leadership quality and a certain poise to him. That um, I mean, I think the guys gravitate towards too. Um, smart, obviously. I mean, the quarterback, he's been in this league for a while. He knows what he wants to get to. He knows what he wants to do. Um, I mean, you know, some, sometimes, you know, you kind of look at the quarterback like he's like, like you can't talk to him, but Andy's the first one talking, you know, if he sees something or if he likes something, you know, he, he comes and tells us or he'll, he'll tell Pete, he'll tell DA. And, um, I mean, that's, that's great to have um, a quarterback that's community, communi- that's able to communicate uh, that way. Um, and, I mean, he just, he just about having fun. Like, he really like, he, he, he want to have a swag out there. So, you know, um, I think just him having that type of demeanor and that type of poise, you know, it, it helps the guys around them. Pete Carmichael is your offensive coordinator. There's been some criticism, not only for me, but a lot of Saints fans and media members about his play calling to start the season. It seemingly has took a turn, though. They have seemingly have kind of turned the page a little bit with how they're calling games, in particular, the last six quarters of this season, four against Seattle and the last two against Minnesota, where – all of a sudden, you started seeing more things from the offense, different wrinkles. And Carmichael talked about how this offense has been successful over the last six quarters. Uh, I think we've been playing in a nice little rhythm. Um, and I think that, you know, we're doing a good job on first and second down, staying efficient, uh, getting ourselves last, last week, you know, getting ourselves into some manageable third down situations. And, uh, you know, when you can convert those third downs and the drive sustain, you can call, you know, you get more opportunities to whether run or throw the football. Now, the big question mark for this game is the wide receivers. And I'm not talking about Cincinnati's. I'm talking about the Saints. 
Is Michael Thomas going to be able to go? Is Chris Olave going to be out of concussion protocol? Is Jarvis Landry going to be able to go? You know, are we going to have to see Callaway and the corpse of Kevin White out there trying to catch the football? And Carmichael talked about the challenges that presents him as a play caller in the offense having so many injuries to the wide receiving room. Well, I think this, I think that, uh, you know, again, you look at your personnel, the matchups, where you feel best about. But I think that, again, the guys that are playing for us have, have played and uh, we're confident in their abilities. And so, again, it comes down to, you know, you f- find ways to try to get the balls in um, the ball in somebody's hands that you feel confident with. And uh, we're confident with anybody that's out on the field for us. I hope they're confident because if those guys can't go, they're going to need somebody to step up in the passing game. We'll talk more about Saints, Bengals later on today's show when Fletcher Mackle joins us for the Big Easy Blitz. But coming up next after this timeout, Brandon Olson from the Locked On Gators podcast will join us as we preview LSU Florida. That's next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Lafayette Marble and Granite offers the largest selection of granite, quartz, and marble in Acadiana. And they appreciate the opportunity to earn your business. That's right. As you've heard me tell you before, Chris and his team over at LMG, they provide more than show-stopping countertops for your kitchens, your bathrooms, and even your man caves. They also now have an extensive selection of custom shower builds with their new grout-free showers. That's right. No muss, no fuss, and no odor. Make sure to visit their website, lmgelite.com. That's lmgelite.com to learn more about all the sensational services and the tremendous products they have to offer. Live inventory is updated every single Wednesday. Visit lmgelite.com or, you know what, stop by their soon-to-be-renovated showroom located on I-49 North across from Hub City Ford in the Jockey Lot. Lafayette Marble and Granite, they're looking to earn your business, and trust me, earn it they will don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day who is saturday's game between lsu and florida bigger for is it bigger for billy napier or is it bigger for brian kelly or is it big equally for both right now 39 percent of you say brian kelly 32 percent say billy napier 29 percent say both keep those votes coming keep those comments coming as well as we'll update them throughout the remainder of today's show I feel like we should be bringing on Brandon Olson from the Locked On Gators podcast. But while I was com- trying to communicate with my producer extraordinaire, Miss Hannah Five Names, I was shushed. I was given the finger, not the middle one, not to worry. She's not that way. Uh, but I was given the, the wag of not to bother her because apparently TikTok is more important than having Brandon on to talk or to, you know, communicate with the host of the morning show. So. I don't know. Uh, I answered both of your questions. You said, do I have Brandon? And I shook my head, guess. Uh-huh. You asked me to print the live reads off. I said, no, I have not yet. And I said, hold on, please. I was thinking a TikTok because we are trying to get our social media presence mm-hmm. up some more. So I was thinking a TikTok of uh-huh. what you think 
Yeah. I'm doing and what I'm actually doing you, behind the scenes. You know what I hear when you when you say these things? It's like listening to my daughter Hattie try to explain to me why she needs to borrow the phone to make a mo- movie because it's for like school or something like that. It's not really for school. It's her just wanting to be creative and make a movie. And you're trying to play it off like, oh, I'm doing this for work purposes. I'm trying to do something cool on social media. It's a work thing. It is, though. <laughs> but, yes, I do have Brandon Olson on the Locked On Gators and Whole Nine Yards. It'll be the last time that he comes on. He's like, these people are filled with nothing but nonsense and shenanigans. Brandon, good morning, bud. How are you? <laughs> I'm fantastic now. How are you? <laughs> we like to have fun around here, bud. It's Friday, man. You gotta have a, you gotta have fun on a Friday, right? So, hey, I, I want to ask you this. We spoke in the past uh, more than a few times, so I, I want to get the perspective about Billy and the job that he's done. I know Gator fans can or tend to be an impatient bunch, and uh, they have lofty expectations as they should because they've been a great program for a long time. So, how does the fan base feel about the job Billy Napier is doing in year number one? Well, uh, saying that they can be impatient, Gators fans, is wild understatement. There, um, they were—I mean, they were calling for him in June when they weren't getting enough commits, and then now, after last night, top eight class in the country. So he's—he's uh, he's answered the question. And then when you look at on-the-field product, I think that a lot of Gators fans recognize that it isn't always pretty, but Florida is. You know, winning games they shouldn't, like the Utah game. Losing games closer than they should, like Tennessee. And um, it's not moral victories, but I think most of us can acknowledge that Dan Mullen didn't leave the most talented Gators roster that we've ever seen when he left Gainesville. And uh, I, I think that we can acknowledge that Billy Napier is figuring it out and trying to get the most out of this roster. And at the very least, this is a roster that's going to play their butts off for Billy Napier. As someone who covered him for four years, that's exactly how that's going to go down. And it always takes him a while because he's very much a guy that's all about the, his process, right? He is the type of guy that's built that loves the work involved. The, the stuff that gets done on a random Tuesday afternoon that you don't see in the offseason – that's in his wheelhouse. He loves the process, and he loves talking about that process and developing and self-evaluating. His personality is not bombastic. It's not charismatic by any stretch of the imagination. He's just what I call a football coach. Are the Gator fans okay with their head coach not being you know, charismatic and just being a guy that it's all about winning? Yes. Yeah, we, we had the guy who wants to dress up like Darth Vader and, and – and, and, you know, go be third in the SEC or fourth in the SEC. Now we want to win, though. We want to get back to that end. Gators fans, they're fine with Billy Napier. They actually love how, how I don't want to say dry, but direct Billy Napier is, where, I mean, we've seen players get benched when they're underperforming, and it's like, well, Dan Mullen would have never done this. So I think that everybody kind of loves that. And uh, he Billy Napier has done a couple of things in press conferences where, there's one reporter that Gators fans don't really love, and Billy is kind of dry about it. He's like, I don't think that's accurate, whatever the question was, and people kind of love that. Uh, but Billy's in, 
I mean, fantastic. And he's not super charismatic, but, you know, the, the Utah win, he comes into the locker room and he's yelling, how about them Gators? And Florida's social team has done a fantastic job of making him a much more exciting individual than he is. Let's talk about the quarterback he inherited, Anthony Richardson. He had a good game against Utah but the passing really wasn't there. And during that stretch where they lost to Kentucky, struggled to beat South Florida, and had the you know shootout against Tennessee, the passing really wasn't there. You started seeing glimpses of it against the Volunteers. But in the last few games, the QBR is up. The touchdown-to-interception ratio is where it needs to be. Talk about his development as a passer from the start of the season till right now. Yeah, I think from the start of the season to now, you've seen Billy Napier and Anthony Richardson each try to kind of experiment to figure out what's really going to work for them. Because Anthony Richardson against, you know, Eastern Washington and Tennessee was doing a a fine job passing. I mean, obviously, Eastern Washington, take with a grain of salt because it's an FCS program that's, I mean, you're playing against an SEC team in Gainesville. Um, But... It's been difficult to find any sort of consistency throwing the ball. And the thing that's been just taking me for a spin is that I don't know how to fix it because Billy Napier calls a lot of wide receiver screens and these swings. And he did that at Louisiana with Levi Lewis. But now you've got Anthony Richardson here. And you're doing the same things where Anthony Richardson is this big-armed guy. But then again, you can't justify opening up the playbook because Anthony Richardson struggles with this simple offense. And so it's just a constant constant circling of can you open up the playbook and hope that he builds confidence or do you keep it safe and you know he won't turn it over that much? And they've been figuring it out. It has gotten better. I know Anthony Richardson has changed his, uh, his practices and he started working more individually with wide receivers or with wide receivers as a group outside of practice as well to try to figure out what they like, where they like the ball, what routes they like to run, and figure some things out with that. And it looks like it's working so far, but even then it's still been inconsistent. What about the rushing attack? What do you make of it? With Anthony Richardson individually? Or, or no, just, just uh, I'm sorry, just overall with the Gators' offense. It is explosive. This is the most aggressive Gators offensive line that we've seen in a very long time. I mean, just from left to right, there's no glaring weaknesses. That left guard spot, they rotate a little bit. It's a little worrisome. But even then, I'd say the left guard spot is average at worst. And the rest of the O-line is able to kind of carry them. Osiris Torrance, who transferred from Louisiana with Billy, has been fantastic at the right guard spot. And it, it, it's kind of great to have an offensive line that puts in the work and is willing to kind of mow dudes down, and then you've got someone like Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne who are just going to gash defenses consistently. Running the football is his bread and butter. We saw that here. Uh, a lot of the folks listening right now in Lafayette would, would, would say uh, thank you, and you can send your thank you cards to them in the mail for those couple of impact players from the Cajuns that are playing for the Gators. Some Cajun fans would have really liked them to still be here uh, this season. But, no, you, look, you got a draft prospect in Osiris Torrance. He's got an ugly 
mean streak in them, right, across that offensive line. And, and look, Billy likes to run the football. And that could be the other part of this with the Richardson thing is, you know, yeah, he's got the big arm, but as someone who covered Billy for, you know, four years here, uh, the man likes to run the football. He's a Nick Saban disciple. He likes to run the football, Brandon. And and if if he wins ugly games, he doesn't care as long as he wins. Yeah, I mean, I don't care either, honestly. Like, I know that there are Gator fans who do care, but at the end of the day, I don't think it matters how you win. I think this year it's more about kind of just evaluating your team and figuring it out with Billy Napier. And so the wins and losses are great. You know, I mean – Four and two is not something that we really anticipated in Gainesville at this time. So I'm fine with it. I think most Gators fans are fine with the win-loss record. I think it's more so about trying to figure it out with Anthony Richardson because at this point, I don't think he's going to go to the NFL draft after this year. So you're going to have him for next year, but you have to figure it out with how you can find success with him next year when it's more so about competing to win instead of just competing to maybe pick up some wins you shouldn't win and just evaluate the team. We're talking with Brandon Olson of the Locked On Gators podcast. He joins us here in RP3 and Company as we look ahead to this LSU-Florida matchup. I think this is one of the sneakily good rivalries in the conference and one that has had some legendary moments and really kind of bizarre moments. And the rivalry kind of seeps into other sports as well, basketball, baseball and softball as well what makes this thing so special and in, in the last 20 years between florida and lsu you know that's a difficult part i can't tell you what makes it special but i know that i hate lsu more than i hate uh, way more of the other rivalry schools in florida I, lsu is one of the schools where i'm like you know what i i need to see a florida win and i haven't seen it recently but i think that part of the the wacky moments that happens kind of feed into the rivalry because then it becomes this whole thing where LSU fans are fantastic trash talkers. Florida Gators fans are fantastic trash talkers. And I think that's kind of what it is, that that when you're a trash talker and you're going up against another good trash talker, it kind of picks up your talk a little bit. And I think that when you have these two schools that are so good at it to each other, that it, it just picks it up even more. Let's talk about the matchup, and we'll wrap it up with here. What do you think is going to be the key to the game between LSU and Florida tomorrow in the Swamp? I think for Florida, you have to focus on not turning the ball over, which has been a big struggle so far, and just containing Jaden Daniels' scrambling ability. Florida has been gashed. I think it was 16 scrambles for 226 yards this season, if I'm not mistaken. And, yeah, and we know that Jaden Daniels likes to run that football. And granted, a lot of those yards came on one, I think it was 45-yard hand and hooker run. But still, you you can't let that happen if you're Billy Napier, Patrick Toney, if you're the Gators. You cannot let Jaden Daniels get comfortable running the football against you. Who do you think is going to win, bud? I will say I think Florida, but I think it's going to be a a field goal game. Uh, I would not be shocked if it went either way. I I just think that Florida, I I don't buy into Jaden Daniels is my main thing is that I'm just not bought in on him. And so I'm going to pick the Gators, but it would not shock me if it went either way. Brandon, appreciate your time as always, brother. Keep up the tremendous work that you're doing there with the Locked On Gators podcast, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. 
we got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up hour number two. That's all coming up right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Poll question of the day. Saturday's game between LSU and Florida. Who is it bigger for? Billy Napier, Brian Kelly, or both? Right now, 40% of you say Brian Kelly. 32% say both. 28% say Billy Napier. Let's get to some comments. Brad on the Twitter says, Kelly, because he's coming off a bad loss combined with Florida being one of our most hated rivals, go Tigers. Ton says, I'll say Brian Kelly only because he's already established as a successful Power 5 head coach and is going up against a first-year Power 5 head coach. That said, Alabama-Tennessee being a barn burner is not something I ever thought I'd say or see. JPK, the OD, says, I don't know how bigger, but I bet Billy is taking it on more personally. I don't care what anyone says. He was upset that LSU didn't at least talk to him. Salty Steve says, scared money don't make no money. Whichever coach takes the training wheels off of his offense will win. Hopefully both do, and it's a barn burner. And John Paul, Cajun Daddy, says, LSU and Kelly, their schedule just gets harder. Only one close to easy win left, and that was Kelly a mistake, and should LSU stay home with Billy? Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming. Leave them on Facebook and Twitter for our poll question of the day. Hour number two in the books. We'll kick off hour number three with talking to St. Ed Blue Jay legend, baseball, football, Scotty Richard. That's next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Our number three has arrived here in RP3 and Company, and we're going to kick it off with a local legend. It always fills my heart up with joy when I get to speak to someone who meant so much to an area high school. He was a star quarterback and pitcher shortstop for the St. Edmonds Blue Jays in the late 70s, early 80s. Won a state championship in baseball, played for a state championship in football. He would go on to play at McNeese and then come back to his alma mater as a head coach, winning three state championships in baseball and leading the football program to a state semifinal appearance. It's our privilege to welcome to RP3 and Company the St. Ed legend himself, Scotty Richard. Coach, good morning to you, brother. How are you? I'm doing well, very well, and I appreciate you having me. Appreciate you making the time, my friend. Uh, Let's go back here. You know, you played in an era where it was encouraged to play multiple sports. <laughs> you know, those days are those days are no longer with us, as we both know. But, you know, just tell me about your memories of being a multi-sport athlete back there in the late 70s to early 80s. Well, you, you are 100 percent correct. Back then it was it was, uh, you know, advised to play as many sports as you could. And uh, I do the same thing with my kids and grandkids now because I think it, it's good for the athlete, good for the person to be on a team sport and learn how to win as a team and not as an individual, you know. But um, very fun playing that many sports. They kind of ran into each other, so I kind of stayed out of trouble that way. <laughs> that, that's why a lot of us played sports all year round, Coach. <laughs> yes, that is correct. You stay out of a lot of trouble. You're not wrong there, Coach. All right, let's talk about that 1979 season. You take over as a starting quarterback. You guys advance all the way to the state championship game. What was the expectations you guys had before the start of that season? 
you know, the year before uh, we had went, I believe we'd went to the finals also, and we had a lot of the guys coming back. We had a very big offensive line. I think our line averaged like 210, 215, something like that. And we had a running back in Blake Corville that was 210, and, and Kenny needs that 195. So we, we, we knew going in we were going to have a pretty good football team. And um, we had a great coach and Coach Nagata, you know, very disciplined man, and uh, he disciplined us. And I don't know when it was during the season, but we just, you know, played as hard as we could and ended up in the in the finals. And it was uh, – I tell you what, it was a lot of fun. It was played at the old Bobcat Stadium. Uh, people remember that, and it was jam-packed. They had people standing outside, inside, and it was it was a lot of fun. Hard, very hard-hitting football game. No, I remember that. That season comes to a close with a 3 to nothing loss to Port Sulphur in the state championship game, one of the lowest state championship game scores in history. What do you remember most about that physical last contest of the season, Coach? Yes. You know, I don't know if the, the older guys are going to remember this, but we were inside the 24 times that night, uh, tried to punch it in, and, and, and we couldn't we couldn't do it. They were just tough on defense. And uh, we, had a, we had an all-state kicker, you know, in Blake Corville. And uh, I think the whole team decided, you know, we didn't want to go for the tie. We wanted to go for the win. So we tried as hard as we could, and they beat us 3 nut. And uh, it, was, it was a hard, hard, very hard-hitting football game. After back-to-back state championship appearances, it looked like you guys were primed for another run your junior year, Coach. Unfortunately, you guys fall just a little bit short. What was the difference between those two state runner-up teams and your two final years? Well, that was, <clears throat> the next year was my junior year, and uh, we ended up playing, uh, I think it was Port Sulphur in the semifinals. We were one game away again from being there. Um, they beat us, I think it was 12-6, something like that. And so we, we, had, a, we had a shot at it. And then after after my junior year, all the guys that had played the last two years was a you know the two big classes that graduated, and I think we only had like twelve seniors uh, my senior year, and, and uh, most of the kids playing underneath us didn't have much experience, so we didn't do much after that. During this time, you're also a star pitcher and shortstop for the Blue Jays baseball team. What's your fondest memories on the diamond during your career there in high school? Well. There's a bunch, I promise you. But I guess the the biggest one was winning a state championship uh, against, I think it was Central Catholic. We won a state championship. Uh, we won uh, multiple tournaments. Uh, my my playing career and uh, just a lot of fun because you know we had good baseball teams. And uh, matter of fact, uh, one we went play Port Sulphur the year that well <clears throat> we played them in the fall in football and in the spring. We go play them in baseball. I think it was the quarters or the semis, and they leading us three to nothing <laughs> going into the fifth inning, which they had beat us in the finals. So uh, we we did come back and end up beating them six to three. So we got those three points back and we beat them. So that was a fond fond memory also. You were good in football. You were a better baseball player, as we know, because you ended up going on to pitch at McNeese. Walk us through that process. Well, the main reason I went to. Uh, McNeese was there was an agreement when I signed my baseball scholarship that I was going to also be able to play football so that's one of the main reasons I went there was other colleges um, that had recruited me that you know were big bigger baseball schools and I guess I just chose McNeese because I wanted to go try to play football and baseball and it it didn't the football didn't work out I ended up getting injured and um, couldn't play What's your fondest memory of playing baseball for McNeese? 
Oh, I got a couple of them. <laughs> my younger brother, um, Tad, actually got to catch me my last game pitching. I was a senior. He was a freshman. That was one. That was a great memory. Um, he got to catch me my last game, and I get to I get to through all nine innings, and uh, he caught me, and we ended up winning. So that was a that was a fond memory. And also one year I had uh, I say I I don't like saying I because it was a baseball team, but I think I had like eight wins uh, that year and was leading the conference in in wins as a pitcher. You know, now some of them were you know relief innings and some of them were full games. So probably those two are the fondest memories I had. You get done with college and you make the transition into coaching. Was that something you always wanted to do? You always aspired even when you were playing? Had no idea I was going to do that because once I graduated, I came back to work uh, where I'm working now at my, my dad's uh, place in Eunice called DNR Supply. And I had a couple of booster members that came and talked to me about going coach. I said, I have no idea, you know, the first thing about what to do. You know, I, I knew how to make a lineup, but that's about it. But it was the other things, and they came to hey, I don't know. I said, okay, I'm going to go try it. So in 1988 in the spring, I went over there and started coaching baseball and, uh, I wouldn't have wanted to be a, a player coach that I coached because I was really hard on them. I was 24 years old, just getting out of college. They they went through some rough times, but uh, they were a good baseball team, and we ended up winning a state championship. What's the, the, the one thing early on for maybe a young coach that you would tell them when you take over a program? What's the most important thing? I would say the most important thing is don't ever take for granted a kid knows what you're talking about. And I'll give you the perfect example. Uh, coaching one year, uh, one of my players had a 3-0 and count on him, and I gave him the take sign, and he swung. I gave him the take sign again. He swung, and he ended up striking out. Now, I, you know, I couldn't be upset because I think I knew what had happened. I think he didn't know the signals. And sure enough, after the game, I asked the kids, I said, do you all know what take means? And half the team rose, raised their hands and the other half didn't. So that's where I go back to – don't ever take for granted a kid knows what you're talking about. You have to explain every every little thing about it. When you took over the program, did you feel like, hey, I'm going to lead this program back to winning state championships again? Or did you think, hey, I'm just going to try to do my best here? That, that was the whole thing. I just wanted to do my best because, you know, for years St. Ed's was a, a, you know, a football and baseball school, and baseball was very important. And I just wanted to, to teach these guys, number one, was to have discipline, not only on the field but off the field, and to learn how to win as a team. Like I keep saying, you know, there's no I in team. And uh, the teams that we won with, I promise you, played as team as a team. And uh, it's uh, – I tell you what, though, the coaches will tell you this all the time. You strain harder as a coach than you do as a player, <laughs> you know. So just a lot of fun, a lot of stress, but – Great kids, great teams that I had. Once you get to that mountaintop in 1988 and you win the state championship, how hard is it to maintain that level of excellence year in, year out, after you have the bullseye placed on your back, Coach? Very difficult, very difficult. So I got a lot of respect to teams that, you know, win year in, year in and year out because you got to find a way to motivate this team different than you had to motivate the team from last year or the year before, the kids are all different. It's very hard, and like you said, there's a big bullseye on you every time you go to play. It's hard to explain that to kids. Uh, they just don't understand. Now, as they grow older, they understand, but when they're 17, 18 years old, they don't understand. In the midst of this 
great run that you're having as the baseball coach, you go, you know what? I don't got enough on my plate. Let me go ahead and decide to be the head football coach at the same time. Walk us through that, Coach. What went in your mind thinking, hey, this is something that I want to do, or rather this is something that I feel like I need to do for my high school? I I coached uh, as an assistant every year that I was uh, for football every year that I was there. I always wanted to try it and try, you know, things that I had in my head that I thought might work or, or whatnot, not not second guess the head coach, just, you know, I would, I would do things a little bit different, you know, and I always wanted that. And uh, I had left St. Ed's for a couple of years. And when I came back, I had told him, I said, I'd love to be the head football and, and baseball coach. And um, that was a lot of fun. You and I kind of talked about it earlier. Uh, it was a lot of time away from family, which you know, I kind of regret now, but my kids are all growing up. They understand now, but um, it was difficult. But I'm going to tell you what, it's the funnest years of my life. Why did you decide to hang it up and step away from coaching? You were so successful in both sports. You had the three state championships for baseball. You led the football team to a state semifinal appearance. You obviously love it. You're passionate about it, and you're passionate about helping mold boys into men, so to speak, coach. So why did you make the decision to step away and say, you know what, my time is now? Well, got a little wiser in my, my older age and realized my kids wasn't getting any younger and I hadn't spent a lot of time with my wife. So that's probably the main reason, you know, I wanted to give back to my kids and, and my wife, uh, the years that I'd taken away when, you know, I was younger. That's probably the main reason not had nothing to do with the school or the kids or anything like that. It was me making a decision, uh, of being home for my family. What was that first season like when you stepped away from coaching? How difficult oh, was that? My, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was tough. It was tough. Uh, as as I do even now, it's hard for me to go watch a game um, because I want to have some input in the game, you know, especially when St. Ed is playing. Um, but it's very difficult to go watch a game and know that you, you have no control over it. I enjoyed watching my kids play in high school, of course. But um, nowadays, it's just, you know, I know what we did as coaches and know that we could probably do the same thing and possibly win. Coach, we'll wrap it up with this. What does the school mean to you? What does it mean to you to be a Blue Jay for all these years, from a player to a coach to now just as a supporter and as a proud alum? You know, once a Blue Jay, always a Blue Jay. I know know it's a cliche, but, um, you know, we just had our 40-year class reunion uh, last week and it means so much as a as a player coach and as a family you know my all of my uh, siblings went to school there uh, very involved with the school now I have grandchildren going there and it's um, it's it's a it's a family at St. Ed's you know we're not a very big school so everybody knows everybody and you have to pull together to get along to keep this thing going. So, it, it, you know, it, there's nothing like it. And I know a lot of people say that about their schools, but I'm going to have to follow up and say there's nothing like being a Blue Jay. Well said, brother. Appreciate your time <laughs> as always. And, uh, man, just enjoy your life. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your grandbabies. I just got one thing left to say. I got a great wife. <laughs> <laughs> a great wife. A great wife. Smart man. Smart man. (laughs) Thank you, Coach. Appreciate your time, brother. Okay, buddy.
Thanks once again to St. Edmunds legend Scotty Richard for joining us here on RP3 and Company. we got to take a time out, but when we return, it'll be time to help you with your fantasy football lineups. Zach Miller, the RP3 and Company fantasy expert, will be joining us next live right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Sign up right now for the Game Rewards Club at 1037thegame.com so you can score tickets, gift certificates, and more. This is the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, the Tesh Project is hosting the Shake Your Trail Feather Paddle Parade and Party in the Park on October the 22nd. A pair of live Cajun bands are going to escort paddlers as they float from Poche Bridge to Bro Bridge from 10 until noon. After the paddle parade, there's going to be a free celebration at the park in Bro Bridge from 11.30 to 2. Horace Trahan and the Austin Express will be playing. There also will be kids' activities, food, drinks, bird costume prizes, and a kayak raffle. Come paddle or join the fun with the Tesh Project on October 22nd in Bro Bridge. For more information, for the Shake Your Trail Feather Paddle Parade and Party in the Park, go visit the website teshproject.org. That's teshproject.org. Don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day. This weekend, this Saturday, Swamp. Billy Napier, first-year head coach of the Florida Gators. Brian Kelly, first-year head coach of the LSU Tigers. Saturday's game, who is this game bigger for? Is it Kelly? Is it Napier or is it both? Keep those votes coming and leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. But right now it's time for us to bring on someone that's going to help you set your fantasy football lineup. Thankfully, no one had anyone in their lineup that took part in that atrocity that was Thursday Night Football. Oh, woof, woof, woof. Helping you with your fantasy football lineup is a man who's a previous RP3 and Company League champion, our good friend Zach Miller. Zach, good morning to you, bud. How are you, my friend? Raymond, I'm doing good, brother. How about you? I'm doing good. Hey, did you finally get off the schneid? Did you get a win this past weekend, bud? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I think I think your friend Kevin Foote would call this a medicine season, right? Medicine season for fantasy. Well, I know you're in like 17 different leagues. Seven. Seven, sorry. So I am I would assume that you're doing well in others. Yes, I, I'm actually not 0-5 in all of my leagues. Uh, so that, that, that's what's keeping me afloat right now. All right, bud. Uh, just look, Thursday night football was atrocious yet again. Now – Part of that is because of the matchups. Washington, Chicago, those offenses are just dreadful. Look, I know they got a couple of impact players on both teams, but moving forward, now that we're you know more than a quarter through the season, should you have any optimism whatsoever in having skill position guys from Chicago or Washington on your fantasy football team? I don't think any of those guys at this point are going to be locked in must-start players. Uh, you may have some that just have very favorable matchups that week. So depending on the matchup, yeah, you might say, okay, I, I feel at least somewhat optimistic about sticking them in there this week. Um, and maybe now that Robinson has kind of been given the, 
the lead back role, if he can actually start to do anything with it, maybe maybe towards the latter part of the season, uh, you can rely on him as, as somebody you can stick in there on a weekly basis. But uh, I'm not optimistic on any of them at this point. Yeah, I, I got a whopping 8.20 points from uh, McLaren. So <laughs> that was yeah. that was uh, not it's not optimal. That's just that's not, not what you signed up for when you drafted, right? Yeah, no, no, you're correct. Not at all. That was not is not is not good. It's not good. All right, but this weekend though we have what I count really three marquee games on the schedule that's really going to impact fantasy football matchups, and I want to start with the first one and the the surprising surprising. New York Giants, Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, despite having wide receivers that can't catch the football that they spent high draft picks on or free agent deals, the Giants are playing really well, and they're taking on a Baltimore team that is scrappy, little bit underperforming at 3-2, and two, but you have a fantasy machine in Lamar Jackson. Give us the guys that are must-starts in this matchup between the Ravens and the Giants. Well, I'm going to start J.K. Dobbins. Um, his game is more like a power running game, and that is something that gives the the Giants problems. So I'm going to start J.K. Dobbins. Um, I'm I'm skeptical to start either of the Ravens receivers. Of course, you can have a situation where um, he catches a 75-yard touchdown, like he's he's done once or twice, um, but he just not consistently getting those wide receiver looks. So uh, of course you're starting Andrews, um, you're starting Barkley. I'm not going to sit Daniel Jones in this. Uh, I'm not going to start Daniel Jones if I have another option. Um, he has run the ball and passed the ball somewhat effectively, but the Ravens kind of have him figured out. So I wouldn't be uh, starting Daniel Jones if if I have another option. So you're not going to start Daniel Jones, despite the fact that he's 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 actually played fairly well in this ball game, and you like Dobbins for the Ravens any concerns that he had to be held out for so long especially to start the season no concerns about the rust or maybe limited touches for him in Baltimore's offense well his first game back where he was cleared he had he dominated the touches and had two touchdowns um so it was a a full workload and oddly enough they kind of held him back a little bit last week um but they're going to rectify that this week Uh, he's clearly the the most talented running back that they have. Um, so I'm going to start Dobbins with confidence. All right, bud, let's go to the other big game for me this uh, for this coming weekend, and that's Bills at Chiefs. You know, this is a, a divisional playoff rematch. Uh, two of the best quarterbacks, you could argue two of the best three quarterbacks in the league are going to be in this game. Tons of skill position guys, even without Tyreek Hill, you still have Travis Kelsey, and and they still got a bunch of what essentially are a bunch of bums in the wide receiving core, yet the Chiefs still find a way to put up massive amounts of points. We know Diggs is a monster. Josh Allen is a monster. Give me these matchups here between the Bills and the Chiefs. Yeah, so uh, Gabriel Davis is somebody who also you might want to start. Obviously, Diggs, um, the Chiefs haven't done very good against number one receivers. So I expect Diggs to, to be just fine. But Gabriel Davis opposite him, who had a huge game last week. Um, three catches, two touchdowns. Uh, he just went crazy. I expect him to continue his hot streak. Um, I'm the running back for the Bills, Singletary. I don't really have much confidence in him. They 
proven that they don't have to run the ball. They're not really interested in running the ball. Um, and if they need to move the ball on the ground, they let Josh Allen do it. And Singletary just doesn't get any action in the passing game. So I'm, I'm going to fade Singletary at this point. On the other side of the ball, you mentioned the wide receiving core. Any given week, you can have somebody like Hardman who, who gets a touchdown or you know puts up a few points. But it's just very inconsistent. So outside of Kelsey, I'm not really high on the pass catchers there. Uh, we mentioned Clyde Edwards-Elair last week. Um, as somebody that was getting touches in key moments. Well, that changed last week. Uh, you had McKinnon and uh, Pacheco touching the ball in very key situations. So uh, it looks like his grasp on the, the lead duties there is starting to slip a little bit. So I'm, I'm also very skeptical about starting Clyde edwards Um At this point in the season with bye weeks and injuries, you might not have another choice. Uh, but if you do, you may want to consider benching Elair. And I got him in my roster. <laughs> so I have to make a decision now because of that. All right, bud, let's get the big game between the Cowboys and the Eagles. Cooper Rush has done a nice job filling in for Dak Prescott. Their offense is not dynamic. Zeke Elliott is a shell of himself yet because of their strong defense. And they, they're still able to run the football fairly well. They're finding ways to win. Eagles, the only undefeated team left in the NFL. Who are some of the guys that stand out to you in this matchup between the Cowboys and the Eagles on Sunday Night Football? So Tony Pollard, uh, he's he's played very well. Uh, he's still listed as the number two behind Ezekiel Elliott, but he's been a lot more efficient with the touches that he's, he's received. Um, so I like him. He can break a big play at any moment. Um, C.D. Lamb is somebody who's been on fire lately. But I tell you what, he's going to be locked up opposite Darius Slay. Um, and Slay gave fits to Justin Jefferson a few weeks ago. We, we see what he can do versus a number one wide receiver. So um, C.D. Lamb is somebody who may uh, have a tough day at the office. Um, they are not passing the ball to Dalton Schultz at all. It seems like they're, they're taking him back very slowly from his injury. So um, I wouldn't have him in my lineup if you have any other options. But on the other side of the ball, Jalen Hurts obviously, um, and both wide receivers over there are startable. The tight end, Dallas Goddard, very startable. Even Miles Sanders at this point has been very efficient, uh, solid if unspectacular most weeks, but he's had some huge games as well. So um, I like the Eagles' skill position players a lot more than the Cowboys, uh, minus Pollard this week. All right, bud, one more quick one. If you had quarterback issues, let's say you got one of your quarterbacks is injured and the other one is wildly underperforming whether you say you had like Russell Wilson or Matt Ryan or somebody like that and you're searching for a quarterback in a deep league, who are you recommending maybe to scoop up to have on there, even if it's just in case of an emergency? Uh, assuming Geno hasn't been scooped up already, which uh, if anybody's paying attention, he has been in your league. But if for some reason he's still sitting out there, obviously you want to grab him. Um, Trevor Lawrence is, is one of those guys who's available in you know about 50% of leagues, depending on your format, um, that that might be an option as well. Uh, he's he's pretty much figured out Gus Bradley's defense, um, and they're going to be playing in a dome. So I like I like Trevor Lawrence to have at least a, a startable fantasy week, uh, even if he's not going to you know win you your league. He should put up enough points to at least keep you in the fight. Brother, appreciate your time as always. Enjoy your weekend, my friend, and we'll talk to you next week, bud. Sounds good, man. We got to take a timeout.
When we return, it'll be time for the Big Easy Blitz with Fletcher Mackle joining us. We'll preview Saints Bengals. That's next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Houdan is ready for Saints talk. The give to Camara. Breaks through, spins at the two, into the end zone. Touchdown! Time to talk Saints with the Big Easy Blitz here on RP3 and Company. The Saints snap their losing streak and beat the Seattle Seahawks in a entertaining game, to say the least. And they got the win. That's all that matters to improve to two and three and to keep pace in the NFC South. Only a game behind the Tampa Bay Bucks. They'll be at home this Sunday and they'll welcome in, in case you hadn't heard, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. They played at LSU, in case anyone was wondering. I don't know if you're aware of that. But the Bengals, the defending AFC champs, come to town against a banged-up Saints team. We'll talk about this matchup now here on the Big Easy Blitz with our friend, the three-time Associated Press Louisiana Sportscaster of the Year from WDSU, Fletcher Mackle, joins us now. Fletcher, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. Thank you for, uh, for having me. Nice, nice morning here in New Orleans, so all is uh, all's well. So, my first question to you is this, and it's been a big topic all week. The Saints fans who will be cheering on Joe Burrow and company, because a lot of Saints fans are also LSU fans, and this has become, over the last couple years, a a bit of a contentious thing inside the fan base alone. Look, I'm old school. I don't root for my college players that, you know, played for my college team. I, I wish them well, but... When they play my pro team, the team that I've loved my entire life, I'm rooting against you, right? And so that's how I'm built. I know not everyone feels that way. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it doesn't it doesn't matter. How do you feel about this thing? Because it's gotten a little contentious, especially on social media, about Saints fans cheering for the Bengals this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm curious to see what the Dome looks like. I think the hardcore New Orleans people – are going to be wearing their black and gold, and nothing will convince them to waver from their fandom of the Houdat Nation and being part of the Houdat Nation. I think you're going to see a lot of fans that maybe watch the games around Louisiana that love Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase that may lean a little bit more LSU that are going to be there with their B-U-R-R-E-A-U-X, the Burrow jerseys, or Jamar Chase jerseys, LSU jerseys, and maybe even some Bengals jerseys there. So, look, the Saints were definitely concerned about this. I, I know that it has been a concern for the Saints having an, a, an important game in an atmosphere that they need to be in their favor uh, swung in the opposite direction because there's definitely going to be, no doubt about it, a lot of LSU people coming not to say those LSU people aren't Saints fans, but they're more LSU than Saints. And uh, and they're going to be there to cheer on Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. Let, and you, you even heard Cam Jordan talk about this, saying, hey, we got some LSU guys that people are excited about, too. So they're definitely conscious of this thing, right? They're, they're, there's a little bit of a concern about not having uh, the home crowd behind them, which is an interesting thing considering that, you know, they're at home. (laughs) So, um, but let's talk about this matchup. Do the Saints need to have Michael Thomas 
and Chris Olave and Jarvis Landry? Do they need all three of those guys to play Sunday to have a chance to win? Um, I would say yes. And the bad thing is, is I don't think they're going to have some of those guys. Michael Thomas hasn't practiced in two plus weeks, oh. so I, I I don't think he's going to be out there. He's been dealing with a toe issue. He hasn't practiced this week. He didn't practice in the two weeks prior to this. He's missed a couple of straight games. So I, I don't see how he gets out there. Jarvis Landry has not practiced. Didn't you know? Last week, Dennis Allen said he thought he'd be out there. So I still think there's a chance, even though he hasn't practiced, that that he could still be out there. But I think he's suspect. Chris Olave dealt with the concussion, which is obviously a serious issue in the NFL um, always. But right now, because of what we've seen um, from players like Tua, but he is looking like he may get cleared from concussion protocol and be out there. Um, look, Lance Moore, the former Saints wide receiver, is now an analyst at WDSU. They may be signing him at 38 years old because they're going to be thin on receivers. I mean, I'm kidding. They're not. But he, they're going to be thin at receiver, and it's definitely going to be detrimental to this team uh, against uh, a Bengals team that is two and three and looking to get back on track after winning the AFC last year. So the Saints, in some form or fashion, are going to be undermanned, could be heavily undermanned, but are still going to be undermanned in this game in some form or fashion. We're talking with Fletcher Mackle of WDSU out of New Orleans. He joins us here for the Big Easy Blitz. And as banged up as the wide receiving core is, which is awful, and, man, you're paying Michael Thomas a ton of money not to play football. Once again, here we are, another season of that. And I understand Saints fans are frustrated with it, as they should be. I mean, it's nothing against him. You get injured, you get injured. But, man, that's oh, it's just rough patch of uh, going there. But as banged up as the wide receiving core is, yeah, facing Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, which means you got to have your top cornerback. What's the status? What's the latest on Marshawn Lattimore? Is he going to be able to go on Sunday or not? Yeah, again, another game-time decision. The abdominal injury he suffered on that, that long pass from Seattle when he got landed on. Um, and, and so, again, I, I don't know. It, and that is definitely – you know, to me, that would be their most significant loss. And Marshawn Lattimore has not had a good season. Marshawn Lattimore has struggled at times this season. Um, I do think the good news for the Saints is that their front seven is healthy, and, and their front seven played very well last week um, on third down, getting pressure on Geno Smith. While the Saints, it's funny, the Saints were terrible last week giving up big plays. Geno Smith had so many electric big plays six plays of 30 or more yards, which is just awful. The Saints still held Seattle to just one of nine on third down conversions, which is one of the reasons why they won that game. Joe Burrow's the fourth most sacked player in the NFL this season. In just five games, he's already been sacked 18 times. Last year, he was the most sacked quarterback in the NFL. So Cam Jordan in that front seven, you know, may have to bring it home. Last week, the hero was Taysom Hill. This week, the hero may be Cam Jordan or Demario Davis or even a guy like Pete Werner, who is playing great right now, because getting after Joe Burrow, especially if they're depleted in secondary, if, if Marshawn Lattimore can't go, they're going to need to get all the pressure they can. But again, a lot of these guys, the injury report has been long this week. I'll say that, and it's, it's not good. Wide receiver, defensive back, 
Jameis at quarterback. I think Andy Dalton's going to start for this team. I think they're going to be down at least Michael Thomas. Maybe they get Jarvis back. Maybe they get Olave back. Maybe they get Marshawn back. But it's going to be a game that is, is going to be interesting to see who's starting. Paulson Adebo struggled last week in that game against Seattle. Uh, he's had moments. He has the potential to be a really good cornerback, but do you expect him to have a bounce-back game regardless if Lattimore has to play or not? I mean, I hope. They need him to, especially if Lattimore doesn't go. Paulson Adebo was the darling of training camp. I mean, he was the best player in training camp, and everybody thought he was poised for this massive Pro Bowl-type breakthrough season, too. And, and he started the season injured, and he came back, and he's been okay. And, and, yeah, he was the guy who really got picked on and struggled. Lattimore has been up and down this season. Um, obviously, you know, Justin Jefferson did a number on him against Minnesota. That I don't hold as much against him because I think that Justin Jefferson is maybe the best receiver in football or one of them. Um, but with Jamar Chase coming to town, if if Lattimore can't go, Paul Adebo is really going to need to step up. And, uh, and, and hopefully he does because, again, they could not give up six plays of 30 or more yards. I mean, in the NFL, that's, that's kind of an unfathomable number. What you don't see, this isn't college where teams can schedule rent-a-win games and the Power Five just throws it deep on the, on the, on the smaller conference program. Six plays of 30 or more yards is crazy in the NFL. So Paulson Debo needs to step up in a big way, especially if Lattimore can't go. Both teams are two and three. Yeah, I'm not a must, you know, must win type of guy, not early in the season. And they still have winnable games, the Saints do, to kind of get back on track in the division, I think is wide open. But who do you think needs the win more on Sunday? Is it Cincinnati, the defending AFC champs who have struggled to two and three and have lost a bunch of close games? Or do you think it's the Saints? So that's a great question. I said last week's game, when the Saints <laughs> went in one and three, based on the statistics, Last week's game was a must-win game. If the Saints would have lost last week. So, at 2-3, and three, the Saints' statistical odds to make the playoff are still at, like, 39 or 40%. If the Saints would have fallen to 1-4, 1-4 in four, in four teams have, like, a 17% statistical chance of making the playoff. So, last week's game, to me, when the Saints went in 1-3, and three, I said all week it's a must-win game. Saints lose, we can almost start looking at 23 and in, 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 in right off this year. At 2-3, and three, I think both of these teams, there's still light at the end of the tunnel. Even if the team that loses falls to 2-4, and four, I know that it, it doesn't look good, but I still think there's a chance for both of them. Both of their divisions are wide open. I, I don't think the Steelers are very good. I, I still don't know what the Browns are. The Ravens are, are still questionable to me with Cincinnati. Um, obviously, the NFC South, Carolina is a complete mess, fired their coach. They're awful. Um, I don't think much of Atlanta. I think Tampa is not Tampa of the last two years of Brady. But I do think it's more important for the Saints to win this game than it is the Bengals. And here's why. The Saints have not faced the teeth of their schedule yet, so to say. They've got to go to San Francisco and face that great defense. They've got to go to the Eagles and, and, and face that team that's really good. They still have to play Baltimore. They still have to play the Rams. Um, so, to me, it's more important this week for the New Orleans Saints to get a win than it is, you know, Cincinnati. The Saints this week, in my mind, are still the more desperate team. Fletcher, 
Appreciate your time, as always. Brother, we don't have to be desperate when we ask you to come on because you just class the place up, bud. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it anytime. It's Fletcher Mackle from WDSU in New Orleans. we got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up today's show, finalize the poll question, get you set up for footnotes with, wait for it, Kevin Foote. That's right. That's all coming up right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Oh, it's time for you to warm up your dancing legs this weekend for the official run into Offalon of Festival Acadian. Race through Lafayette's historic district and end up at Gerard Park for Festival Acadiana this Sunday. Compete in the 5K or the 10K or the run paddle run in the Duathlon. Taking part in the event, hey, encourages exercise, healthy living, and taking fun, taking part in fun events outdoors. But it also helps support local parks, community projects, and the festival that you love. Volunteer or register at latrail.org. That's latrail.org. Poll question of the day. We asked you about Saturday's game in the swamp. Billy Napier coaching the Florida Gators. Brian Kelly coaching the LSU Tigers. Both teams are 4-2. and two. This game could help decide the trajectory of the rest of their season. So who is this game bigger for? Is it Billy Napier? Is it Brian Kelly? Or is it both? And final results. 39% of you say it's bigger for Brian Kelly. 33% say both. 28% say Billy Napier. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. And before we get to our picks for LSU, McNeese, and the Saints, I want to take a moment to thank all of our guests today on RP3 and Company. James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast. Brandon Olson from the Locked on Gators podcast. Scotty Richard. Whew. St. Ed's Blue Jay multi-sport coaching legend. Zach Miller for fantasy football help, and of course, Fletcher Mackle from WDSU. So let's get right to it. Here's the picks. Let's start off with the game that will start before the others. That's LSU at Florida. Both teams are 4-2. and two. Producer extraordinaire, Miss Hannah, five names. What are you going with? I'm actually going for a 24-21. I think I, I believe in kind of what Olsen was saying. I think it's going to be a very close game. They're both new coaches to new teams, so... I'm thinking 24-21 LSU. Going with the Tigers to get back on track yep. after getting molly whopped by Tennessee on Saturday. Dude, dude. I have the same score, but the other <laughs> result. I think because the game is in the swamp, that gives an edge to Florida. I think they're better a little bit talent-wise, and I just think their defense is playing a little bit better, especially against LSU's offense. This will be an ugly game, 24-21, Gators win. Let's go to McNeese. A&M Commerce, this is the conference home opener for the Cowboys. They're coming off the bye. What do you got? I think Manise does take it home. I think they win the game. But I think it's really, really close. They have all these guys that are off the team, guys that are injured. So I'm saying 21-20 in the state of McNeese. Low-scoring affair there in the Chuck. I'm going with McNeese pulling it out. 27-24 is the final score. A field goal will make the difference in this ballgame in the hole tomorrow night. All right, let's wrap it up with the weekend. The oh, Bengals, Saints, LSU, Saints fans conflict that's going to be taking place inside the Caesar Superdome. Who do you got? I got the Saints in this. I want the, all the Joe Burrow fans to be so upset when they leave. Like, oh, I should have worn Saints gear. So I'm going 24-17 in favor of the Saints. 
if the Saints weren't banged up and ravaged by injuries to their wide receiving core and to their defensive secondary, I would pick the Saints here. But may not be Michael Thomas, may not be Jarvis Landry, Chris Olave may not go. You may not have Marshawn Lattimore in this game. My, my opinion may change right before the start of the game, but so many issues right before kickoff with the health of this roster. I like the Bengals to win 28-24. Make sure to check out our picks on social media over the weekend. That's going to do it for today's show. For the producer extraordinaire, Miss Hannah Five Names, I'm Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. We'll do it all again on Monday, 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foot and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros.